This Parsha podcast is on Parsha's Chukas, the Parsha that has some of the most interesting storylines, interesting narratives in the whole Torah. It starts off, of course, with the red cow, such a bizarre law if someone becomes impure, specifically the impurity rendered by a dead body. If you touch a dead body, if you bury a dead body, if you visit a cemetery, if you are in a room, in an enclosure with a dead body, you become what's called tame mace, impure, ritually impure, due to contact or close proximity to a dead body. You are impure, and the only way that that can be undone is with this very long, interesting, strange, elaborate process of taking a completely red cow, 100% red, it can have an allowance of one non-red hair, but that's it. If it has two black hairs, it is no longer qualified to be a red cow. You got to take a red cow and do all kinds of things with it. You got to slaughter it and you got to burn it. You got to take the ashes and mix them with all kinds of other ingredients, sprinkle it upon the person at various different junctures in the seven days of purification. And the person who was impure becomes pure, one of the strangest laws in the Torah, the law that we're told is a chok. It is a mitzvah that makes no sense to us, and that is how our parsha begins. And then, chapter 20, we have this very unusual shift in the timeline. We have this fast-forward of 38 years in the future. The storyline of these 40 years in the wilderness are bookended at the beginning of the 40 years, the first year and change, and at the end of the 40 years, and then in our Parsha, we have the seam line. We have the cutoff between the first half and the second half of these 40 years. What happens in the middle, what happened in the middle is a great mystery. And the first event that happens at the end of these 40 years is the death of Miriam. Miriam, of course, is Moshe's older sister. She appeared a few times in the book of Exodus. She appeared also a few weeks ago when she slandered her brother. She spoke with Shonran and her brother and she got Saras. And immediately with the death of Miriam, we have the cessation of the well. The Jewish people are in the wilderness. They're in the desert. There are no natural water sources that are easily accessible. And this has been a repeating theme throughout these 40 years, or at least throughout the Torah's telling of the stories and the narratives of what happened over the course of these 40 years, is that they are repeatedly stranded without water. In fact, three days after the splitting of the sea and the exultant song at the sea, they end up in Mara, and they've gone three days without any water, and the people are so parched, and they're going to die. And they complain to Moshe, and in Mara there was water, but the waters were bitter, and Moshe was shown a stick, and he threw the stick into the water, and the waters sweetened. And then in Rafidim, again, they had no water. This time God told Moshe, take a staff and go hit this particular rock, and the rock will emit water, and that, in fact, is what happened. Now, that rock followed them rolled with them for the duration of the 40 years. And embedded in this rock was water, enough water to provide water for the whole nation, a nation of millions, including their animals, their cattle, their sheep, their flocks. This well, we discover in our parsha, is known as the well of Miriam. This miraculous well that was embedded in a stone is the well of Miriam. And when Miriam passed, the well ceased to produce water. And the people come to Moshe, and they complain. And again, God tells them, take a stick, take a staff, and go speak to said stone, said rock. Instead of speaking to it, he strikes it, not once, but twice. And the waters are resumed. Moshe has restored the well of Miriam, but because he didn't sufficiently sanctify the name of God, he and Aaron were punished that they're not going to enter the land of Israel. And that is told, in fact, in our parsha. Moshe is condemned to die in the wilderness together with the generation that he brought out of the land of Egypt. He is not going to cross over the Jordan. Joshua will lead the nation into Canaan. And then we have a bunch of encounters with foreign nations. Again, this is at the end of the 40 years. 
The nation has traversed all across the whole region, and now they're trying to cut through on the east bank of the Jordan to cut through to arrive at the Jordan, to eventually cross the Jordan and enter the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. So they have this encounter with the nation of Edom to try to cut through to the Jordan River. They are refused passage, and they turn away. And then we have the death of Aaron and his burial in dramatic fashion. So Miriam died, the oldest of this family, this wonderful family, Miriam, Aaron, Moshe. Miriam died in our parasha. Moshe and Aaron are condemned to die. Aaron, in fact, also passes in our parasha, and he is buried in, again, very dramatic fashion. He ascends together with his son and Moshe. Aaron is buried. He's taken by God and he's buried. But not before he clothes, he dons his son with the special garments, the special vestments of the high priest. He's able to pass over the baton to his son. He is going to be his successor. And after Aaron passes, then we have another cessation. With Miriam's passing, we lost the well, the well of Miriam. With Aaron's passing, we lost the other miracle that was due to Aaron, namely the clouds of glory. And as a result of that, the nation is exposed. If you think about it, they've had like this invisibility cloak surrounding them, enveloping them over the course of these 40 years. And now that has been removed. They are vulnerable and they are attacked by Amalek. Amalek is masquerading as Canaanites. This is the second encounter with the enemy in our parasha. First was Edom. Now it is Amalek. They're able to triumph over Amalek. But then we have more complaining, complaining about the manna. We have the episode of the snakes, where snakes are attacking them. Moshe installs a metal serpent. Whoever is bitten looks at the serpent and is saved. And then we have various wars on the eastern side of the Jordan. The war with the Amorites, the war with Sichon, the war with Og, and the very dramatic and mysterious song of the well. So this parsha, it's loaded with all kinds of interesting themes and ideas. And again, I want to remind you that I am in Canada, still. So if you hear some noise in the background, it's because this is not a ideal, an ideal environment for recording. But that's okay. That's okay. You'll forgive me for that. What I want to do today is I want to share not one big idea, but a battery of ideas, a bunch of ideas on this Parsha to enhance our connection with the Parsha and to maybe learn something interesting along the way. Now, the truth is, I'll tell you a little secret. I'm recording this a little bit early. This is going to be released, please God, on Wednesday of Parsha's Chukas. Today, you are surprised to learn, today is Friday of Parsha's Korach. So I'm recording this five days early. Now, why would I record five days early? A couple of days ago, I recorded Parsha's Korach, also in Canada. Why am I recording Parsha's Chukas a bit early? So here's the reason why. On Sunday, please God, of Parsha's Korach, I'm traveling, I'm flying to Israel, and I'm going to be in Israel the whole week next week. And as a result, I decided to record ahead of time. Now, I'll tell you the reason why I'm going. My in-laws, they should live and be well, they have a tradition that they like to bring their grandchildren to Israel for their bar and bat mitzvah. Now, my in-laws, father and mother, were both planning on taking my two eldest boys, Ativ and Yeshua, to Israel. Ativ had his bar mitzvah last year. Yeshua's going to have his bar mitzvah in a few months. So they'll bunch them together. Unfortunately, my mother-in-law was not able to make it. So my father-in-law, like a total champ, took these two boys, Ativ and Yeshua. They've been in Israel the whole week. And the plan is that I'm going to take it over for the second week, the second and final week of their trip. We're going to overlap me and my father-in-law for one day. And he's going to fly back to Canada, and I'm going to be in Israel for a week and change and fly back with the boys. So I had a choice. What is going to be with Parshas Chukas? There were really three options, if you think about it. There were three options of what I could have done. Option number one is to skip Parshas Chukas. And you know that's not really an option. We're too deep into this to stop now. I just, I couldn't bear that option. Option number two was to travel with my portable torch center and all my recording paraphernalia and my laptop 
and to record there to find some time there. I didn't like that option either because I want to really concentrate on the boys. You know, the boys, even though both of them were born in Israel, when we left, Akiva was four and Yahushua was, was almost three and they don't remember anything about it. So I want to make this an impactful trip for them. And I thought, you know, if I have my microphone and my laptop and I have to record, it's going to be in my mind and it's going to dominate the trip too much. It wouldn't be fair for the boys. You know, this is their special trip. They're going, they're in, their grandparents are bringing them. They're going to spend some time with their grandparents and with their dad in Israel. It's not fair for me to lug around my microphone and to try to find a quiet space, you know, middle of our trip to record. So I was left with option number three, and that's to record ahead of time. But as a result, this is a bit underdone. It wasn't in the oven for sufficient time. It's a bit half-baked. And therefore, I'm not going to have one big idea to try to wrap the whole parsha together. I'm going to share with you some ideas, some observations. And I have found in the past, sometimes when it's a bit underdone, you know, some people like their cake, a little bit mushy, a little bit underdone, a little doughy. Maybe some of y'all will even like this better. I don't know. You let me know. Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. So let's start off with the death of Miriam. In our parsha, we have really the demise of the three, the three leaders of the Jewish people, the three shepherds, as they are known, of the, of the nation. We have Moshe, of course, is the king of the Jewish people. He doesn't die in our parasha. Moshe's death and eulogy are the final events in the whole Torah. But Moshe is condemned to die in our parasha. Aaron is condemned to die in our parasha, and he, in fact, passes. And Miriam passes as well. These three are the three leaders of the Jewish people. When the nation had their first war with Amalek in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, there were three people atop the mountain, Moshe. To his right was Aaron. To his left was Hur, who is Miriam's son. So he's like standing in for mom. These are the three leaders. These are the three horsemen. These are the three representatives. If we're going to have a battle against our nemesis, against Amalek, we're going to send our three leaders. And Hur was standing in for mom, Moshe. Aaron and Miriam. And they're all passing in Aparsha. Aaron and Miriam are in fact passing, and Moshe is condemned to pass. It will be implemented. It will be executed later on in the Torah. But it's interesting. We're told that Moshe and Aaron, they did a sin. What their sin is, of course, all the commentators are trying to figure out what did they do wrong. The Arachim offers 10 different reasons, and all of them are insufficient. No one really knows what Moshe and Aaron did wrong and why is it a sin. It's seemingly something that can only be a sin on their level. Only on Moshe and Aaron's level can something as fine of a misstep be considered a sin. I've, I've heard, I've heard it said that if we did what Moshe did, it would be our, the greatest mitzvah of our lifetimes. But for Moshe, on his level, there was something slightly lacking in striking the rock instead of hitting it, and Rashi has his take, and the Ramban has his take, and the Ramam has his take, and all the commentators are struggling to figure out what did they do wrong, but they did something wrong on their level, and that's why they were punished to be barred from entering the land of Israel. But what about Miriam? What about Miriam? The Torah does not tell us of any sin that she did that would warrant her being punished to not be allowed to enter the land of Israel. Now, of course, she did do a sin, as we know, at the end of Parashas Behaloscha. She spoke against her brother, but she was immediately punished for it. She got Saras. And she was sequestered. She was quarantined for seven days. So she received her punishment, and we can say she received her atonement, and therefore she's been cleansed, and there will be no lingering effects of her transgression. Why should she be barred from entering the land? Interesting question. Now, I saw another interesting question, which is related, and that is, 
the Talmud says something very peculiar. In our parsha, we're told that Moshe, by striking the rock as opposed to hitting it, that is his sin. And that is his sole sin that barred him from entering the land. And in fact, Rashi emphasizes this a few times in his commentary throughout the Torah. When it talks about the death of Moshe and Aaron, it always says because of the event of the rock, hitting the rock as opposed to speaking the rock. And that's their sin. And Rashi always tells us, Rashi always emphasizes that this is the sole reason why they died before entering the land. Now the Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 111, the Talmud says something very strange. The Talmud goes back to chapter 6, I believe it is, of the book of Exodus, when Moshe was initially commissioned by God to go save the Jewish people. So his initial efforts failed spectacularly. Instead of Pharaoh easing the burden upon the Jewish people, Pharaoh, in fact, exacerbated it. And Moshe went to God. And Moshe said, why did you do this, the nation? Better not to send me. I came to help them. Things got worse. And God responded to him, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And the Talmud says, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh? To Pharaoh you'll see. But to what I do to the 31 Canaanite nations? That you will not see. In fact, if you look at Rashi, this is again chapter 6 of Exodus. Rashi says specifically that because of Moshe, because of Moshe, questioning God, questioning God's mercy and kindness and benevolence, and telling God that you did wrong to the Jewish people, that's the reason why Moshe did not merit to witness what God is going to do to the Canaanite kings. I will show you what I will do to Pharaoh, Pharaoh specifically, Pharaoh exclusively. You will not see what I will do to the Canaanite nations. So which is it? Why? Why, pray tell, does the Talmud seem to disagree with the explicit verse? The verse says explicitly in our parish, the reason why Moshe did not merit to enter the land is because of the episode of striking the rock. Yet we're told that there's a different reason. There's a different reason why Moshe was disallowed from entering the land. And that has to do with questioning God at the initial stages of the Exodus. Which is it? So we have two questions. One question, why Miriam was barred from entering? There's no sin that we have on record for her. And why Moshe were told twice, there's two specific reasons, two mutually exclusive reasons, why he was not allowed to enter the land of Israel. So I saw a very clever answer. Very clever. I say just tell us, this is quoted in the Chavetz Chaim. He quotes it from the Chovas Alvavos. So these are very reputable sources. That when someone speaks Lashon Hara against another person, there is an exchange of credits and transgressions that occurs. Person A says something negative, Lashon Hara against person B. There is a transfer. Person A transfers their good deeds to person B. And person B transfers their bad deeds to person A. Not only is speaking Lashon a terrible idea because it's not productive and because it foments dispute and disagreement and disunity, and it's a great violation. It's also one of the worst things you could do because all those mitzvahs that you worked so hard to do can be transferred to your nemesis, who you're speaking badly about, and all of their sins can be transferred back to you. So here's the clever answer to answer both questions. Moshe had a very terrible transgression, of course, on his level. When he told God, why did you do bad to this nation? He was complaining. He was failing to see 
God's big plan. He was failing to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And that was so severe that would have warranted Moshe to witness what happens to Pharaoh, but not what happens to the Canaanite kings. And that was the reason why Moshe was not going to be allowed to enter the land. And then Miriam spoke negatively about him. Then there was a transfer. And that sin with its consequences was transferred over to Miriam. And now Miriam has a reason to not enter the land not because of what she did, but because of what Moshe did, which was transferred to her when she spoke to him. And Moshe was cleansed. Subsequently, in the episode of The Strike of the Rock, Moshe got a second reason why he would not be allowed to enter the land. And thus, Miriam and Moshe and Aaron all have reason, and only one reason, to not enter the land. Really interesting idea. I think it's a clever insight. It's two questions with one answer, but also a nice lesson for us about the importance to not speak Lashon Hara. Now, something really interesting that Rashi tells us with the death of Miriam, it comes right after the episode of the Red Cow. And Rashi asks the question, why are these two stories, or these two narratives, why are they juxtaposed? What is the connection between the Red Cow cleansing someone from their impurity and the death of Miriam. So Rashi says something very interesting, quoting from the Talmud, just as the red cow and sacrifices in general, just as they atone, so too the death of the righteous atones. When you have a sacrifice, that cleanses you. When you have a red cow sprinkled upon you, that cleanses you. You know what else cleanses you? The death of the righteous. And therefore, there is a natural continuation here. We have one episode of cleansing followed by a second episode of cleansing. We have the red cow followed by the death of Miriam, who was so righteous, her death begot cleansing for the nation. Very interesting and provocative idea that the death of the righteous atones just like sacrifices, just like the red cow. And the question is, why? Why would the death of the righteous provide atonement? So the Maharal says something really interesting. He says that when someone does something wrong, there are a variety of ways you could rectify that. You could cleanse it in a few different ways. There's one way to cleanse it by addressing it head on. You did something wrong, you repent, you regret it, you try to fix the blemish. There's a second way that atonement, cleansing, expiation can be gotten. And that is by changing the status or the, the the infrastructure in which you are living, changing the reason why you sin to begin with. Meaning you don't address the sin itself, but you address the environment that led to such a mistake happening. If you change the environment and in the new current environment, there wouldn't be such a possibility for such a transgression. That in itself provides atonement. So he says something very obvious. When someone dies, a part of them becomes inoperable. The soul, of course, has more life probably after after death because it's no longer constricted by the body. So you are still alive after you die because your soul is still alive. But the body is not alive at all. Now, which part of these two unusual bedfellows, which part of these two contributes to sin? Is it the soul or is it the body? Primarily, we are told, of course, it is the physicality. It is our animalistic selves that are likely to contribute to us behaving in an animalistic fashion in a way that goes against the will of our soul, the will of our creator. And therefore, if the sin is a result of the body, 
and the death is a reduction of the body. The body is now inoperable. It's not going to work. It's not going to behave the way it had behaved previously. It's decomposing. It's disintegrating. Well, death provides atonement. This is not just the death of the righteous. This is the death, any death. The Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma, at the end, that if someone does a transgression, part of the atonement process is their demise. So death in general provides atonement. But the righteous, the righteous, they are the representatives of the entire generation. They're the ones who stand up for the whole people. They're the ones who are public figures, and they have a greater impact on the generation more than any other individual. And therefore, when they die, they provide atonement for everyone. And that's why, says the Maharal, that's why specifically with the red cow of all sacrifices, that's why we're told this juxtaposition of the death of the righteous providing atonement, specifically with the red cow, because part of the process of the red cow is burning it reducing it to ashes, reducing it to its very basic existence, removing its body and leaving just what's left. And that is emblematic of the death of an individual. You remove it down to its essence, which the essence is just the soul. Everything else is excised, is removed. And that's why it provides atonement. That's what the Maharal says. A really interesting creative idea to understand the death of Miriam being juxtaposed to the red cow and providing atonement just as the red cow cleanses. I want to add a wrinkle of this, of my own, to this idea and to this juxtaposition. So the first thing, the first principle that he tells us is that atonement, atonement comes when the reason, when the cause, when the impetus for the sin is gone, then the sin or the result of the sin, the after effects of the sin, go with it. But here was my question. You know, the Maharal asks, why is the red heifer of all the sacrifices the one that we're told this idea with? I want to ask a different question. Why specifically with the death of Miriam are we told this idea? It could have been by anyone's death, Abraham. We have a lot of righteous people that have passed. Isaac, Jacob, their spouses, Moshe, Aaron. Why the death of Miriam? Why is that the one that tells us this idea? So here's what I want to suggest. With the death of Miriam, something absolutely foundational and groundbreaking happened. Chapter 20, verse 2. There was no water for the entire congregation to drink. And Rashi tells us, why did this happen specifically with the death of Miriam? Because for 40 years, the nation was provided water from the well, the well of Miriam. And when she passed, the well went with her. And if you look at Rashi's words, Rashi says that Rashi implies that they did not know, you know, in year five and year seven and year 22, they did not know why they had the water, in whose merit they had the water. Only when she passed and immediately the well from the rock dried up. Only then did they discover that up to that point, it was due to Miriam. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that there were three benefactors. We had Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And each one of them gave us a gift. Miriam gave us the well. Aaron gave us the clouds of glory. And Moshe gave us the manna. And when Miriam died, the well stopped. And when Aaron died, the clouds of glory stopped. And when Moshe died, the manna stopped as well. So we had this amazing miracle and it was all in the merit of Miriam. And no one knew it. And then, when they're all parched, again, Miriam dies, you hear Miriam dies, suddenly you see this this wellspring that was providing a ton of water for the whole nation is now dry. It's a totally dry rock. 
they realized something groundbreaking. They recognized the power of a righteous person. Due to one person's righteousness, an entire nation of millions of people was given water for decades. Well, how much water were they given? So I did some basic crude math. I told you this was a bit half-baked. I googled, well, how much water does a person need every day? So it's something to the tune of three liters of water a day. Well, if there are 365 days a year, it's about 1,100 liters of water a year. For 40 years, it's 43,800 liters of water over the course of these 40 years. And we know that the Jewish people numbered around 3 million people. How so? We know that there were 600,000 adult males between the ages of 20 and 60. There were some older people. There were women. There were young people. So it's been estimated, and we're just, again, using crude numbers. We're ballparking here. We don't know the exact numbers. But let's assume it's around 3 million people. So how many liters of water has this well provided over the course of the 40 years? 131 billion, 400 million liters of water. How many Olympic swimming pools would that fill? It would fill 52,560 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And by the way, this is just for the people. I'm not talking about the water needed for the animals. And all that came from one person. Only one person provided that with their merit. And now you lose that person and their merit no longer benefits you. The nation, with the passing of Miriam, realized the power of what a person can become. We think that, you know, we're we're just people. There are a lot of people out there. Maybe there's even too much people out there. Oh, there's billions of us. We're just here. And what difference does it really make? You know, what dent can I actually impart upon this world? What can I actually accomplish? And then we see Miriam. And she filled up 50,000 swimming pools of water in the wilderness, in the desert. And when you realize that, you realize the potential of a human. And that inspires you to live up to your potential as well. The reason why we make mistakes, we don't live our life to its fullest, is because we're a bit short-sighted. And when we have the death of a tzaddik, it atones. Why does it atone? It atones because the reason why we are small is because we think we're small. And when we discover the capacity, the potential, the power inherent within us, that in itself atones because now we're no longer going to be small. I suspect that that's why it's so important to to eulogize the righteous. It's so important to eulogize them because this is a great learning opportunity to tell us what our fellow humans have accomplished and what we too are capable of. And when we realize that we, we too, we have incredible power and potential, should we wield it wisely, that will sober us up and we're going to adjust our lives accordingly. And that will forgive our sins because sins are the product of thinking you are small. And that's why perhaps the death of Miriam is the one that is used or the death of the righteous, because it has such an immediate, catastrophic consequence for the nation, which made them realize the tremendous power of the tzaddik. That is why, specifically, this is the best example to tell us of this principle, that the death of the righteous provides atonement. I want to add some more interesting observations about the well of Miriam. Now, again, these are these are half-baked. These are little stubs of ideas that uh, maybe could use further development. So I had an interesting question. Didn't see anyone that talked about it. I figured I'll just throw it out to y'all, see what you can make out of it. We have three gifts, courtesy of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Moshe, 
In his merit, we have the manna. Aaron, in his merit, we have the clouds of glory. Miriam, in her merit, we have the well of Miriam. Now, the well of Miriam is called the well of Miriam. The manna is not called the manna of Moshe. The clouds of glory are not called the clouds of Aaron. Why does she have unique attribution? Is that a good question? What do you think? I had another interesting observation. Just to think about the relationship that we have with waters and rocks. It is not the only time that we have in the Torah some sort of relation between water and rock. I was thinking, you go back to the book of Genesis. When Jacob arrived at the well, the well was covered by this huge rock. And Jacob uncorked the well and removed the rock and exposed the water. So to me, I had this interesting line of questioning. Why is it that sometimes the water comes from the rock and sometimes the water is behind the rock, you have to remove the rock to access the water? Interesting question. Maybe there's something there. We know today that it's quite common to have liquid trapped in rock. In fact, if you've heard the term to frack, hydraulic fracturing, what does that refer to? It refers to making these underground explosions to to shatter rock, shale as it's called, and remove the gas and the oil that's trapped in between the little tiny fissures inside the rock. So there is this idea of of liquid somehow being captured in rock. And if you look at our parasha, it says explicitly that God tells Moshe to go strike the rock or to go speak to the rock and the rock shall emit its water, its water of the rock. So why is it that sometimes there is a rock that's concealing the water, if to remove the rock to access the water, and why is it that sometimes the water is trapped inside the rock and you have to hit the rock, speak to the rock, but get the rock to emit its water. I find it interesting that we know the great Rabbi Akiva, in his storyline, he was greatly impressed and moved when he saw water go into a rock. So is this like the opposite of the story of Rabbi Akiva? I'm just spitballing here. This is half-baked. This is just a stub. This is just a thought. Somehow with Rabbi Akiva, the water's going into the rock, and here the water is coming out of the rock. What does it mean? I don't know. And another question. Again, all half-baked. Do with it what you wish. We know that the water comes with the merit of Miriam. Miriam dies. The water dries up. The water ceases. When Miriam had Saras, the nation waited for her for seven days, Rashi tells us, because she waited for Moshe. I was thinking, now that we discover post-facto that Miriam was the reason why we had the water, there was another reason why we had to wait for Miriam, and that is because she's the one who gives us all the water. We leave her here, the water stays with her. So my question was, why does it only highlight the fact that we're waiting for Miriam because Miriam waited for Moshe, therefore she deserves it, Tit for tat, measure for measure, she waited for Moshe, we'll wait for her. There's another very important reason why we have to wait for Miriam. Interesting question. So I thought maybe the answer is hinted in the answer itself. Why did Miriam become the benefactor of water? Maybe it's because she waited for her brother when he was placed into the water. And that's the reason why she has this power to bestow water to all of us. So therefore, when the Talmud, when the Midrash, when Rashi says that the reason why we waited for her is because she waited for Moshe, an extension of that is, and as a result of that, she became the benefactor of water, and therefore we need to wait for her because she's the one who gives us the water. If that's true, then there's, I think, a very nice insight. You know, if you think about it, imagine you're eager to travel. 
And you have to wait seven days because some old lady has to heal from her self-inflicted wound. She did something wrong. She's a criminal. She has saras. She has to be quarantined. And for that reason, we all have to wait for her. You may say, well, why should I wait for her? She caused this for herself. Why do we all, the whole nation sit around, wait for her for some, some sinner? I would imagine that that frustration, that inconvenience would be very hard to bear. But many years later, we discover that the only way that we had water was only because of her. So maybe the lesson, one of the lessons is, is that you may think that something happens to you in your life and that's an inconvenience and that's going to make your life worse. But if you knew the whole picture, who knows? Maybe that inconvenience was so necessary and vital for you as water is for the parched throats. I had another question. Again, half-baked, do with it what you wish. To me, it's interesting. The nation in the wilderness, in the desert, they lacked both food and water. And the Almighty made amazing miracles for both of them. We have, well, the well of Miriam, the water emanating from a rock, and we have the manna from heaven. These are two very different miracles. The manna, it's a totally new food. Whereas the well embedded in the rock is just a new delivery mechanism for good old H2O. So my question was, again, just the stub, throwing it out there. That's what you get, but it's not enough time to uh, have a whole Parsha podcast. Why did the Almighty do different kinds of miracles for food and water? So, for example, we read about how the nation was complaining about the manna, that there was no need to to defecate for 40 years. Because the manna was, it was a heavenly food, it was food of angels. And therefore, there's nothing extra, there's no refuse that you have to remove. I would imagine, and again, this is me speculating, I haven't seen this anywhere, I would imagine that they would need to urinate. Because again, the water is just regular water. Is that right? It's just regular water coming in a in a new in a new and unusual miraculous fashion. So why would the Almighty do such different miracles? The manna that comes from Moshe is not just a new delivery mechanism, parachuting food from heaven. It's a new kind of food to begin with. Whereas the miracle of, of Miriam is the same water that we know. It's just delivered in a miraculous fashion. I also found it interesting. That the nation complains many times about the manna. There's no time that they complain about the water. Again, half-baked. Do with it what you wish. Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. Or maybe next week's exquisite insight. The week that you're listening to its exquisite insight. And that talks about the death of Aaron. The death of Aaron, we read in our Parsha chapter 20, verse 23. Talks about the death of Aaron, but it makes no mention of the date of Aaron's passing. But later on in the book of Numbers, we do get a date. In chapter 33, verse 38, the verse says that it was in the 40th year after the Exodus, in the fifth month on the first day of the month. So when is the fifth month. So we know in the Torah, the counting of the months starts with the month of Nisan, which is the month of the Exodus. So Nisan is one, Iyar is two, Sivan is three, Tammuz, the month that we are currently in, is four, and the month of Av is month number five. So Aaron died on the first day of the month of Av. Of course, we know the month of Av is a sad month. The ninth day of Av, that's the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. The first ninth of Av was the episode of the spies. 
but it's also the date that the first and the second temples were both destroyed. And the Talmud says, Mishenichnas Av, when the month of Av or Av enters, Mema'atim b'simcha, we diminish in simcha in joy. So the first day of Av, we minimize simcha, we minimize joy which, again, we know now is the same day as the date of Aaron's passing. Why are we diminishing joy on the day that Aaron passed? Of course, the easy answer is, well, we're getting close to the date of the destruction of the temple, and these terrible things happen, therefore we have to get in the mood, and we have to spend a couple of days preparing, mentally preparing for the sadness and the experience of trying to relive the tragedy of the destruction of the temple, and therefore by mourning over Jerusalem, maybe we can contribute towards its rebuilding. That's the easy answer. But I'm here in Canada with my brilliant brother-in-law, and he tells me something really fascinating. The very first person regarding whom the Torah says they were joyous, it's Aaron. All the way back in the beginning of the book of Exodus chapter 4, when Moshe is objecting to God's mission to him to go save the Jewish people, he tells him, go send Aaron. He doesn't want to take all the credit, all the glory over his older brother Aaron. And God says to him, you're worried about Aaron. Aaron, he'll see you and he'll see your glory. Vesamach belibo, and he'll be samach, he'll be happy, he'll be joyous in his heart. Now, although it's true, the word simcha, which means joy, appears one more place earlier in the Torah, when Laban was chasing down Jacob, who had fled from him with his family. Laban said, why did you leave? Why did you sneak out like a bandit? I wanted to send you away, besimcha, with joy and with music. So this is a potential joy that Laban claims to have wanted to send Jacob away with. But the very first person the Torah says was joyous is Aaron. And we know there is an old tradition that the very first time the Torah uses a given word or idea, that is the essence and the embodiment of that idea. Thus, Aaron is the embodiment of Simcha, of joy. And thus, when he died, in effect, there was a diminishment of joy. And therefore, when that date is revisited in the calendar, it makes a lot of sense, Mishnah Chasab, when the month of Av begins, Mematem Simcha, we diminish in joy. That is the, that is the energy of that day. It's a diminishment of joy. Perhaps we can add some color to this. We know the temple was destroyed due to baseless hatred. Talmud tells us that there was a reason why we suffered the consequences of the temple being destroyed, and that's because there was baseless hatred from one Jew to another. Aaron was the paragon of loving every fellow human. In fact, the hallmark of Aaron, the Mishnah tells us in the book of Pirkei Avos, he was Ohev Shalom, Urodev Shalom. He was someone who loved peace, who pursued peace, who chased after peace. Ovis Abrius, who loved humanity, Umekarvan la Torah, brought them close to Torah. Aaron was someone that was always making peace. In fact, in our parsha, when Aaron actually passed, the verse says that the entire house of Israel mourned Aaron for 30 days. Rashi tells us the entire house of Israel, that means the men and the women. Why? Because Aaron was such a peacemaker. And he would run and pursue and use all his energy to try to restore peace and harmony. Everyone had a dispute. Every marital discord would come to Aaron and he would resolve it for them. And therefore, when he died, everyone cried. The men, the women, everyone cried because everyone benefited from Aaron's efforts to promote peace. That's what happened on the first day of of. We lost Aaron. We lost our living example of how we have to love every individual, everyone. And perhaps we can say that the terrible events that happened to us in the month of Av 
which the Talmud tells us was a result of us not embodying, personifying the quality of Aaron, it is the lack of our emulation of Aaron that led to the baseless hatred which caused the destruction. Now, I want to tell you one more story. I know y'all listen all the way to the end, so I have to retire that joke. But I'll tell you a crazy story that my father told me. My father grew up in a town in Israel called Be'er Yaakov, which means the, the well of Jacob. His father had founded a yeshiva called Yeshiva of Be'er Yaakov. In 1948, he founded a yeshiva, and he led the yeshiva for 35 years before he moved to Jerusalem in 1983. So my father grew up in this town, Be'er Yaakov, in Israel. In this town, there was a legendary rabbi who was the rabbi of the town. His name was Rabbi Jacobson. My father said the story, listen to this. Rabbi Jacobson's, I think it was his daughter, had a terrible tragedy to her, and she lost her baby. I don't remember the details. I don't know if it was a stillborn, or if it was a, it was um, a SIDS, an infant death. Her baby died. Terrible tragedy. This is going back many decades. And in this town, in this town, there were two families who hated each other, who would feud, who just loathed each other. They were just fighting. And when this baby died, the rabbi takes his the corpse of his dead grandson and he knocks on the door of this family, one of the families. And he says to them, look, this is my grandson, my grandchild. They died without any merits. They had no merits. They had no mitzvahs. They died before they had a chance to do any mitzvahs. Of course, we don't know why God allows such such tragedies to happen, but it happens and we have to understand that we don't understand. This child has no mitzvahs. In his merit, in his honor, I want you to restore your relationship with that guy that you hate down the block. Would you do it? He went to both families and he pulled it off. He pulled it off and they made peace amongst them and they restored their harmony. They reconciled in this child's merit. That's an example of the lengths that someone does, someone who behaves like like Aaron, a peace-loving person, a people-loving person, restores joy, restores harmony, restores peace amongst other people. May we be so fortunate as to emulate the ways of Aaron and thereby avoid any of the pitfalls that come with baseless hatred. And I hope you enjoyed this early rendition of Parshas Chutra's podcast. It's Friday of Parshas Korach. I've told you the truth. We're about to celebrate Shabbos. I hope you have a, a wonderful Shabbos this Shabbos. And next Shabbos, if you're in Israel, hit me up. Send me a text. I have a very busy schedule, but hopefully I can find some time to meet some uh, of y'all who are in Israel. Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And please, God, I'll talk to you, I guess, not next week. In two weeks on the Parsha Podcast, but when you hear this, it'll be next week. Regardless, you take care. Send me an email, rabbit.com.